open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 49, and I'll be reading the first seven verses of that chapter. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. <clears throat> Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. And from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we have an indescribable privilege in having your word. You didn't know it to us. We don't deserve it. And yet you have spoken absolute truth to us. And the very same Holy Spirit that inspired Isaiah to write these words now lives inside every believer in this room uh, to be our instructor. Father, I praise you that we have the word in our language and that we have copies of your word in our possession, a privilege so many believers around the world don't have. And I pray that your spirit would do his work this morning, that he would be our teacher, that he would instruct us, and that our time in your word would not just be an exercise we do on Sunday mornings, but that you would change us. You would make us more like your son, and you would equip us to serve him better. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, after 20 years overseas, America has become effectively a foreign country to me. And just like you often go to other countries and you encounter germs you're not used to and, uh, and find yourself struggling with illness, um, the, the reference that your pastor made to strengthening my voice is because this foreign country called America has uh, given me a cold. I actually think I'm allergic to the Ohio Valley, um, which apparently is a fairly common condition. And uh, so... Please be praying for me as the, as the sermon goes by that my voice uh, stands up. It, it sounds a little hoarse even to me. It's also been interesting for us to deal with reverse culture shock as we have come to the States after 20 years overseas. It's not even reverse culture shock for my children. Uh, both of my children were born in the Himalayas, uh, in the same town where Osama bin Laden was killed. Uh, neither one of them has ever lived in this country before, and, and they are massively in culture shock right now. Um, I was telling your pastor, my son in particular, uh, he's in high school, a junior in high school, and until this year he had never met a nominal Christian. Uh, he has known missionary kids. He has known people who have converted to Christianity from Islam at risk to their lives, and he's known Muslims, and that's really all he's known. So being in an American high school is, uh, is quite a shock to his system. Uh, my daughter is a little better off. She's at Union University and has a good support network of, of fellow missionary kids around her. But one of the things that strikes us very strongly is the celebration of Christmas. 
Uh, this is the first time in many, many years that we have celebrated Christmas in a place where non-Christians around us are celebrating it too. Uh, we haven't been in a place where anybody but Christians celebrated this holiday. Uh, we haven't been in a place where there was any sort of public observance of it. And it's, it's again, a, a bit of a shock to our system. Um, it's, it's surprising to see Christmas decorations and to hear carols and to think, these people don't have a clue what they're talking about or, or what's going on here. Uh, to be aware of the fact that here the debate might seem to be, you know, you know put, the, put Christ back into Christmas. It's shocking that you could celebrate Christmas without Christ at all. But one of the things that strikes me is that even among those who call themselves Christians, even among those who genuinely do have faith in Christ, that the, the magnitude of what happened in the incarnation is often lost. Uh, we rightly want to make sure that Jesus is the center of our celebration, uh, but often that Jesus is simply a baby, and it's kind of warm and sentimental and, and gives fuzzy, tingly feelings up and down your spine, uh, but we, we don't stop necessarily to think what that baby came to do why the baby came, and just exactly how vast the scope of the mission of that baby really would prove to do, prove to be. And so as we think about ourselves as the body of Christ, and as we think of ourselves as the body of Christ celebrating Christmas this season, we need to recognize that Christmas very much lies at the heart of why we're here, but perhaps more radically than you've yet realized, that the mission of the people of God has to nest within the mission of the Messiah. And the mission of the Messiah is probably bigger than generally you think about at Christmas time. So what I hope to do this morning is to help you understand why nothing could be more appropriate than having a missionary stand in your pulpit as you help to celebrate Christmas, because that's exactly where the celebration of Christmas leads us. The church is the body of Christ. It's the instrument of his work around the world. And so we need to look this morning at the scope of his mission and evaluate that, ours in that light. And the text I read this morning is, in fact, about the mission of the Messiah. Now, the first thing, clearly, that the Messiah came to do was to restore the people of God. Uh, he said that he, he sent him to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, in, in a sense, in, in, in summary, to bring God's people back to where they ought to be. And this was a huge need. Uh, I trust you all have read your Old Testaments. You're aware of the, uh, the, the scope of what God has done through history. And the history of the people of God is sadly a history of rebellion over and over and over again. If you ever want to get a realistic picture of human nature, read the book of Judges. If you ever want to get depressed, read the book of Judges. Because what you'll see there is the people of God sin. God allows their enemies to overrun them. Once things get really bad, they cry out to him in repentance. He raises up a deliverer. They get freed from their enemies. And for a little while, they behave themselves. And then they do it all over again just over and over and over again. Uh, even after God raised up a king in David and in his successors, the same thing happened. At the time that Isaiah wrote this, the northern kingdom of Israel was already gone. It had, it had deteriorated so far spiritually that God had allowed it to be completely wiped out by the Assyrians. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there was a sort of shallow righteousness. Uh, there had been periodic revivals. Most recently in Isaiah's time, there had been one under King Hezekiah. But Hezekiah's son Manasseh 
after a good king like, like Hezekiah, was the worst of them all and led them right back into incredible sin. And there was clear doom approaching, and Isaiah prophesies that. And the basic problem was one of worldliness. The people of God wanted to be like the nations around them. And they said that quite explicitly. Why can't we be like the, the nations around us? You know, the relationship between God's people and the world is kind of like the relationship between a ship and the sea. It is right that a ship be in the sea. But if the sea gets in the ship, it's in bad shape. It sinks. And so it is appropriate that the people of God be in the world, but when the world gets in the people of God, it's disastrous. And it has proven so over and over again, both in biblical and in church history. And so Jesus came to do something very necessary. At the time that he came, the people of God were nominally religious, uh, they were very legalistic in, in certain parts of their society, and yet they had, they had still wandered far from the sort of heart righteousness and heart love for God that he required. And so the first thing we hear about the Messiah's mission is that he came to restore Israel. And that is, in fact, the first thing he did. You will remember from the gospel narratives uh, that Jesus said that he was sent first to the lost sheep of Israel, uh, that he came first to, in fact, call out a remnant from among the people of God. Well, so far, so good. Now, any good Jew reading this prophecy would be quite happy to hear all of this. But then he caught him. Because what God said to his son was, just bringing back those who nominally know me isn't enough. That's way too small for somebody like you. If you are God himself in the flesh, that's too little a task. That in fact... God sent his son, sent his Messiah into the world in order to bring his salvation to the Gentiles. Now, you need to hear that in two senses. You need to hear it in, in the sense of what it means in a general idea and also what it would sound like to a Jew. First of all, you need to understand what it, sounded, what, what it means in, it, in, its, in, its, in its root meaning here. When we hear the word nations, we tend to think countries. We think, okay, well, America's a nation, and India's a nation, and China's a nation, and that's what, that's what it means by this. That, that's a relatively modern idea. Uh, now, I, I need to warn you here. This is something that uh, was a real issue in my marriage with my, with my wife. Uh, I was a, a, a medieval history major in college. So for me, the word recent means since 1689. Um, for her, recent usually means in the last two weeks. So I would say something that happened recently, and she'd realize it happened before I was born and get really confused. But this whole idea of nation meaning a country with borders and a government is recent since about... 1689, actually. Um, the idea in the Bible had more to do with ethnic group. The Hebrew word is goy. The Greek word is ethne. And both of them refer to a group of people who share a language and a culture and an identity. And there may be many such under one government. Um, we get our word ethnic group from it. And so, for example, the country of Afghanistan, which was part of my responsibility as regional leader over Central Asia, is about the size of the state of Texas, but they speak f over 50 languages there. And there are over 50 groups in that country that don't talk to each other, frankly don't like each other, and fight each other every chance they get. And that's the idea behind this word, light to the nations. It's light to the peoples, to all the different groups on earth. And that has been God's intention from the start, is that all peoples 
would be included in the people who praise and glorify his name. Now, that's the, the root meaning of the word. Now you need to listen to it again in the way that a Jew would hear it. Because this is the Gentiles. This is the dirty, rotten Gentiles. This is them as opposed to us. This is the people we don't like. Remember that a Pharisee rose every morning and said, I praise God that I am not a woman, not a Samaritan, and not a Gentile. And that reflects very much the sort of attitude that those folks had. They despised the Gentiles. Uh, you get a, a sense of the intensity of the feeling if you read the book of Jonah, where Jonah's fear in going to Nineveh was not that he would fail, but that he would succeed, because the last thing in the world he wanted was for God to save the Assyrians. He didn't want them saved. He wanted them damned. He wanted them condemned. And that was very much the attitude of the Jews toward all non-Jewish groups. They had a tribal idea of their God, that God is here, he's our God, he's here for us, and by extension, not here for anybody else. And what Isaiah is saying here is if that's your idea of God, then your God is too small. Because it's too small a thing just to restore Israel. Now, it's actually, if you think about it, not a small thing at all. It was a huge task. Israel was in bad shape, and they needed a lot of work. But when God is your strength, there are no limits to what can happen. And just restoring those who already have some cultural connection with true religion, although important and essential, is not enough. This passage is a reflection of God's heart for the world. God has always had the world on his heart. The Bible is not a series of, of random disconnected passages. The Bible has a grand narrative to it, a narrative that begins in creation. We see the tragedy of the fall, and then we have the story of, of redemption leading to the ultimate restoration in the new heavens and the new earth. And a major theme through all of that is that God is God of all the earth, and God intends to have a people to praise his name from every nation. The very existence of the nations is a result of our sin. It's a result of the arrogance and pride of humanity as shown at the Tower of Babel. That's where nations came, came to be. And God has always intended that the very consequences of sin should be made to praise him. That just as we splintered because of our sin, God intends to reunite people from all of those into a people to the praise of his glory. And so God's covenant with Abraham Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, he said, I'll make you into a great nation and bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we see this then as a theme all the way through scripture. We see it in the Psalms where all the nations are called on to praise God. We see it in the promise to Habakkuk, where we're told the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. <coughs> we see it as the very sign of the end that uh, this gospel will be preached as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Uh, we see it in the commission to the church, in which we're told to make disciples of all people groups on earth. That's literally what it says. We see it, in fact, in one of the most explicit statements about the very purpose of of the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. Because we're told in Revelation 5, 9, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And so the 
redeeming work of Jesus that saves me had explicitly built into it a global scope. God intends to redeem people from all of those peoples, tribes, nations, and tongues. And two chapters over in, chapter, in Revelation 7-9, we find out that, as always, God accomplishes what he sets out to do. That since Jesus died to redeem people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, there will be redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's, that's can't be otherwise, because that's what God set out to do in the death of his son on the cross. And so, as a consequence of that, the purpose of the baby who was born at Christmas was indeed to restore his own people to himself, to bring revival and renewal within those who are already the people of God, but it was expressly global in its scope because it's too small just to attend to those who already have some knowledge of God. And so there is a twofold mission to the Messiah both renewal and advance. Renewal, reformation, and restoration to those who already had some connection with the gospel and the advance of God's salvation to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And those two go hand in hand. They did then and they do now. God indeed restored a remnant from Israel. And that remnant proved to be the core of those who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But then they weren't content just to stay there and just keep the gospel to the Jews, but they took it to the nations as well. Without Reformation, there is no advance. Uh, The workers for the advance of the gospel come from within the existing church. And so without renewal and restoration and reformation within existing churches, there's no nurture, there's no discipleship. Uh, The prayer and resources for that advance come from within the existing church. And again, if dead and deficit churches just don't engage in mission, the reputation of the gospel comes from existing churches. And without reformation and renewal, the name of God is indeed blasphemed among the Gentiles. One of the greatest obstacles we faced as missionaries in the Muslim world was the fact that in people's minds in the rest of the world, America is a Christian country. Therefore, whatever comes out of America is Christian. And they see our media. They watch our movies and our TV shows. And that's Christian in their minds. And the sad thing is they look at our country and they don't see a sharp distinction between those who genuinely are Christians and those who aren't because it's not there to see. Um, just some, some sobering statistics, the fact that uh, the divorce rate is actually slightly higher in the Southern Baptist Convention than it is in society at large. And my wife was involved in youth ministry and, and had to deal with stats all the time relating to the fact that the moral behavior of kids in youth groups across this country is indistinguishable from that of the world at large. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles if the people of God do not stand out visibly, noticeably different from the rest of the world. And this is an essential thing that we as Christians now in this country must do in order to advance the cause of missions, is to be different and to seek renewal and reformation among the churches that call themselves Christian but may not show much distinction from the rest of the world. But reformation and renewal are not enough. Given the power and strength of God, given the worthiness of the Savior, given the heart of God for the nations, 
Only the world is a big enough vision for God's anointed. And as with the Messiah, so also with us. We must pursue both restoration of those who call themselves God's people and the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so my challenge to you, as my challenge to to every congregation in this country, is to pursue them both. I would urge you to pursue it here within your own congregation, to pursue intimacy and integrity in your own walk with God, to pursue personal holiness in the fear of the Lord, uh, to pursue rigorous, comprehensive Bible teaching and preaching, to pursue godly love and mutual encouragement, mutual accountability and relationships with one another, to guard the doctrine and discipline of your church, uh, to evaluate everything you do, it's wor- your worship, your teaching, your leadership, everything in the light of God's word, uh, to lovingly evangelize your own community. Um, my family actually is not far from, comes from not far from here. My, my roots are in East Tennessee, just over the border, about an hour south of here. And, and I'm aware that this may be the Bible Belt, but that doesn't mean that this is a, a, a bastion of white-hot passion for the gospel. Uh, and your community needs to hear the gospel, and you have an obligation to take it to the go- to take the gospel to it. But at the same time, I urge you to pursue the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Guard yourselves against parochialism. It's easy in a community like this, seeing the world around you, the worldliness of even a Bible Belt community, it's very easy to get your eyes focused right on where you are. Uh, It's also easy as Americans to do that. Um, Americans are actually embarrassingly ignorant of geography and of conditions in the rest of the world. Um, we, uh, I, I actually make all of my students at Southern Seminary now memorize a map of the world. They have to be able to find any country in the world on a blank map uh, because anybody else in the world can do that. Uh, why can't we? Um, I, I look at the news and, and it just frustrates me how little international news there is. But I guarantee you, any, anywhere anything is happening in the world, it affects the spread of the gospel. And we, of all people, need to know what's going on in the world. We need to understand the forces arrayed against the spread of the gospel so that we can engage in intelligent prayer. And so I would encourage you to keep the world in front of you, not just at Christmas time, uh, not just when you take up the Lottie Moon offering, but, but all year round. And I would urge you also to be countercultural, not simply in the fact that you're aware of the rest of the world, but in obedience to your Savior's command to love your enemies. That includes your country's enemies. I love Muslims. God loves Muslims. I hope you do too. And not fear them or hate them because you perceive them as your country's enemies. There's one set of enemies to God, and that is everyone who doesn't belong to him. And that is just as true of your white Anglo-Saxon Protestant neighbor next door as it is of my Afghan friends over in Central Asia. It's all the same. And if someone is our enemy, we have a clear instruction from Jesus about what to do with those enemies. Love them and share the gospel with them. Seek to make them children of God rather than enemies of God. Only two categories of people in the world. And we need to challenge that, that parochialism that says, Uh, my country's enemies are people that I don't like and fear and hate. Uh, It really grieved us after September 11 to hear the the anti-Muslim bigotry that came out even in the churches. 
Are they dangerous? Absolutely yes. Should we hate them? Absolutely not. We should love them and take the gospel to them. It's the best way to deal with, with the whole issue of Islamic terrorism is to, get, is to get them to Jesus, and that will solve the problem right there. I would urge you to be a perpetual learner. I would urge you to keep learning about the world all the time. I would also urge you to learn what missionaries actually do. Uh, we often do a better job of teaching people to support missionaries than what mission work is actually all about. I'm encouraged with the engagement of this church already in, in work overseas. But I would encourage you to, to pursue knowledge of missions so that you can pray intelligently and support us intelligently. I'm encouraged by your active engagement with field workers. Uh, some very dear colleagues of mine were up on this screen uh, earlier this morning, the Wolfsorns. Uh, don't let them think they're alone out there. Uh, don't let it be out of sight, out of mind, but continue to engage with them. And I would encourage you passionately to pray. This is not a platitude. Uh, our lifeline as missionaries has always been prayer. Um, we should never attempt anything that would succeed if God didn't show up. And the, the task of world missions is a task that requires the power of God in order for anything to happen. What we're out to do is to raise the dead. And that requires the power of God. By the way, that's just as true here as anywhere else. What scripture says is that those who are not in Christ are dead in their trespasses and sins. Now, you can help a sick person get better, but I don't think there's anybody in this room that can raise the dead. And yet that is exactly what we've been called to do. If God doesn't show up, nothing happens. And we need the power of God flowing through every mission endeavor. And God has willed in, in, in his wisdom that prayer is an instrument that he uses to channel his power into the places where he's at work. I don't understand it. All I know is he commands us to do it. And I know that we have been very conscious in some very touchy, dangerous situations of the power of the saints of God praying for us while we're engaged in that work. And I encourage you to pray. I encourage you to pray specifically. It's great to pray, God bless the missionaries. It's even better to pray, God bless the wolf zorns as they engage in this project this week because we know about it and we're partners with them in it. Uh, pray for uh, not just safety, but power and effectiveness on the part of your workers overseas. Pray specifically, pray passionately, and pray constantly. I would also encourage you to give to the cause of missions. This is the season for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Uh, you may not be aware of this, but over half of the International Mission Board's budget comes from this one offering one time a year. And the consequences of this offering are that Southern Baptist missionaries do not have to spend any time raising and maintaining their personal support levels. Uh, we had many dear friends on the mission field who were with other mission agencies, and studies have shown that they spend 40% of their time raising or maintaining their support levels, time that is taken away from sharing the gospel with those who don't know it. Now, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, because of Christian response to economic conditions in this country hasn't met its goal in years. And one consequence of that is that your mission force overseas has dropped by almost a thousand in the last three years. Just, uh, just about three years ago, we were at 
5,600 missionaries, we are now down to 4,800, a drop of 800 missionaries overseas because finances aren't there to send them. And we've had to cut back at a time of unprecedented opportunity. Uh, one of the things, uh, even in all of our missionary career, uh, my wife and I always gave to Lottie Moon. And, and one of our sort of rules of thumb is this is Jesus' birthday, he ought to get the biggest gift. And so at the very least, that can be a standard to say, okay, his birthday, whatever I buy for anybody else, Jesus is going to get the biggest gift. And, uh, and that could go a long way to helping us continue to push back the darkness. But I would also challenge you, looking around this room, to consider seriously whether or not God is calling you to go. The imbalance of the Christian worker force is staggering. Right now, 90% of all the full-time Christian workers in the world are in North America, ministering to the most evangelized 7% of the world's population. And that is shameful. And you may think, well, who am I? Uh, I'm, I'm not a preacher. Well, that's great, because preachers are actually the least useful people in the world right now on the mission field. Um, I am one. I can say that. Most of the places where the gospel is most needed are places where you cannot go as a missionary, per se. My whole region of Central Asia, not a single country would grant a missionary visa. So instead, what we needed were people with other kinds of skills that would be acceptable to the government, who also were well-discipled Christians, who knew how to share the gospel and disciple other believers. And so the kind of people we looked for were agriculturalists, and engineers, and doctors and nurses, and school teachers, and business people. Indeed, almost anything. We even, believe it or not, found a use for lawyers. <laughs> Those of us who grew up, who came up through, through our adult training as preachers were especially hard to place and had to learn other skills. I actually uh, picked up a certification as a teacher of English as a second language. But then found for the last four years, you know what I've done overseas? I have coached football. Uh, yes, American football in the country of Turkey with Turkish university students. I had a greater opportunity to share the gospel in that way than anything else I have done. It made my presence perfectly understandable to people. And so every form of sports uh, is also very, very useful. What we need are people who have a genuine sort of dual competency, a real skill that can really get them into countries where the gospel is needed, along with a real ability to handle the word of truth rightly, uh, to disciple believers and to help gather them into churches. If you are young, the time is now to begin thinking about how you're going to, to prepare for a life of service where you are most needed as opposed to where you are least needed. Getting the kinds of skills and the kinds of discipleship that would make you a useful servant. And if you, like me, either have no hair or white hair, then you also have a role to play in all of this, provided that you have the ability physically to go. Now, the thing I've discovered is that uh, I, I once was young and now I'm old, and I'm listened to now in most cultures overseas in ways I never was before. Uh, American culture is very unbiblical, you know. Uh, it seems to think that youth is important. Uh, that's a very, very unbiblical concept. The Bible says gray hair is a crown of glory. It's attained by a righteous life. 
and that you should should rise in respect when the aged come in come into view. And in other cultures, we have found in Muslim cultures that people with white hair can gain a hearing, a respectful hearing, when younger people would either be ignored or perhaps even thrown out of a country. And so whatever your age, if you have the physical ability to do so, uh, there is a way that you can be involved in the spread of the gospel around the world. The thing to remember is that if your vision is just here, then it's too small. We belong to Jesus. Our mission nests within him, within his. It is essential that you have a deep and profound vision for your own congregation and for your own community. That you have a vision for this church being as, as white hot in its passion for the glory of God as it can be. That your own life reflect godliness and holiness in the fear of the Lord. That you love the community around you and you share the gospel with it passionately. But that can never be enough. Just as Jesus' mission was global, yours must be as well. Let's pray. Father, we bless you that Jesus came and died for us. Father, I praise you that Jesus took my place on the cross, and that he bore on himself the wrath that I deserve for my sin that he made that great exchange, taking my wickedness and giving me the gift of his righteousness. And I thank you that I am now irretrievably yours because of what Jesus has done for me. And I know there are many in this congregation who share that joy. Father, if there is anyone here who does not know that salvation, I pray that you would give them the grace this morning to repent to put their trust in Jesus, to give their lives wholly over to him, and to have new life in him. And Father, we pray that you would do that glorious work of resurrection in their lives, even here this morning. But Father, I also praise you that the death of Jesus that saved me is also effective to redeem a countless number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I thank you, you've given us the privilege of being part of your mission to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Father, I pray that you would raise up out of this congregation passionate prayer, that you would raise up sacrificial giving to the cause of missions. And most of all, Father, I pray that you would raise up many, many workers, that from the people who are right now sitting in this room, the gospel would be heard among people groups who now have no witness whatsoever, and that there would be people sitting around the throne worshiping and praising you through the witness of this congregation. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.